welcome to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we are watching Dr. Doolittle. After the animal communicating veterinarian goes too far for his clientele, he and his friends escape their hometown to the sea in search of the great pink sea snail. I will never forgive you for this. <laughs> like, I hated the experience of watching this more than I did Slapshot. Oh, wow. And that is our lowest rated film. Wow. Yeah. Starting 2020 off great. I wouldn't put it on par with that. I said the movie watching experience. Oh, that's fair. God. I haven't even really thought about the movie itself <laughs> because I hated watching it so much. It's really bad. It is really bad. And this movie, this movie got so much awards consideration. This, this is not good. <laughs> no. No. It is quite possibly the worst film to ever be nominated for Best Picture. No. No. That would be the Green Book. Well... That might be the worst winner. No, it shouldn't. I, I, no. Because no. Braveheart also goes up on that list. Braveheart I, was terrible. I, I don't disagree, but it was a better movie than this. This is so bad. And let me tell you, we are going to get so much crazy ass trivia about this movie. Oh, well, I do enjoy crazy ass trivia. Because this along with Hello, Dolly, and Star, but mainly this, is widely considered to have killed the movie musical. I believe that. This movie. Not Hello, Dolly, because that movie is a treasure, despite our opinions about it. This movie, on its own, may have pretty much stuck a fork in that. You ruined everything. Huh. With your singing. You ruined it, Rex. Oh, boy. So, singing? We're going we're gonna to call what he did in this movie singing? Yeah, it's equivalent to what he did in My Fair Lady. At least in My Fair Lady, he carries a tune every once in a while. Yeah, well. And, you know, he originated that role. Did he? On yeah, he was originally the one on Broadway doing it. I didn't know that. Yeah. The budget for this movie was $17 million. Yeah, I believe that. Animals ain't cheap. Its original budget was supposed to be $6 million. Oh, fuck. Somebody's got fired for that. And so that's the equivalent of $131 million. Yeah. And it might have been more than that. There were financial reports saying that it somehow needed to make about $31 million in rentals to break even. Ooh. Its total box office mm -hmm. was $16,300,000. Mm -hmm. By all accounts, it actually did on paper, wind up breaking even. But that was it. It had to work for it. And when I get into some of what went down with this movie, it was way more of a financial hit than that for the studio. Yeah, I believe it. <sighs> this movie mm -hmm. took a total of four years to make. Okay. Now, I think the concept had been around early on, but the reason that they finally pushed into production was trying to capitalize on the success of The Sound of Music. Sure. It was such a hit. Yep. It was such a big fucking deal. We've covered that on this show. David was very favorable to that, and David hates music. I know, but Fox, as we said, put this star and Hello Dolly out and lost massive amounts of money. Mm -hmm. They pushed these movies like fucking crazy, and the studio nearly went under. 
there was such financial losses that they had basically a turnover of almost the entire executive staff and released one movie in 1970. Oh, yeah. Because of how bad these movies did. Yeah, no, like they're du- they were toast. And it only recouped its losses following a re-release of The, the Sound, Sound of, of Music, Music in 1973. That just makes me love The Sound of Music more. <laughs> it's really hard to make a good musical. It is. I don't know the answer to this question, and this makes me a bad musical theater person, but was there a stage musical of Dr. Doolittle? No. Okay, that's their problem. Oh, yeah. It's really hard to start from nothing from the film and give it the magic that the stage has. And when you already have an established, mostly successful stage play, turning it into a movie is not horribly difficult. Singing in the Rain is probably the only one that I know of and that I've seen that pulled it off, where it was a totally original story with songs. Yeah, and even then, I, I, I've I not seen the stage musical of Singing in the Rain, but it it's the movie needed some more tweaking. It needed some rewrites, for sure. Plus, it was using existing music. Yeah, so, but, so that's a different thing, and it was really just banking on the talents of the people in it, so it was okay. But yeah, this... <laughs> This is starting from nothing, and that's you. There's there's no audience to to workshop. Like this song doesn't make sense here, or you need to make this a peppy song and not a ballady song. Like no, this this is not how you can do musicals. Sorry, all of the songs are like a minute and a half too long at least. Yes, and they all sound like other songs. Oh my god! Yeah, that one. It does sound exactly like Maria. Yeah. The, the opening song that we have sounds exactly like Maria. It's bad. A sneak preview in Minneapolis was a giant failure. Yeah. With an audience of mostly adults. Yeah. Not the target audience for this film. Mm-hmm. They got no reaction to the movie. Not like laughter or sort of harumphs. Just dead silence. Yeah, because you don't know if the film is being sincere ever ever so like on the one hand like he's being ridiculous that's a fact he's also an ass Mm -hmm. so we don't know if like like when he decides i have to be a vegetarian it's like you don't even know like does he really care that much or is he like just making a big show it's just you don't you don't know if you can take him seriously at all and that is your protagonist well you have to care or be very curious about him and you're not we will get there because i have one person i'm gonna blame for that yeah 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 rex harrison's a douche oh he's worse than that that's that's not new information the entire audience said it was rated way too long which means it was longer than this cut Ew. when they previewed it and this movie's too long they brought it to san francisco again with new cuts still a bomb Then they showed it finally in San Jose with more cuts, and it did okay enough that they felt like they could put it out. That's what happened with cats. (laughs) According to numerous reports, the movie, despite being a massive flop, was heavily lobbied for awards by Whining and Dining Academy bigwigs. This apparently was common practice Mm -hmm. in 1967 and... The following years with Star and Hello, Dolly. Mm -hmm. Those movies were also wined and dined into Oscar nominations as well. Yeah, no, that's still a practice that they do today. It's just a lot 
it it's more on the press junkets. Like if they just want to make sure that everybody is talking about the movie. Well, yes. Now it's done. Now it's done by four-year consideration campaigns. Yeah. And it's done through a formalized process. But at the time, it was backdoor fucking deals. There is no reason this movie should have been nominated for nine Academy Awards. We will get there. But it was nominated for nine Academy Awards. Nope. I don't even need to know what else is nominated in these categories to know this is garbage. Uh Uh-huh. This is rigged. And probably most damning, this movie had a massive merchandising campaign pushed behind it. I believe that. They had puzzles, book reprints of the original novels, children's toys, school supplies, pet food lines, and small toy figures. Like, that's not stupid. Major artists lined up to record Talk to the Animals, Mm -hmm. including Sammy Davis Jr., who had a major hit with it. Yeah. And Bobby Darin, who had a minor hit. The soundtrack was commissioned in multiple languages with one million copies pressed and almost none of them sold. Mm-hmm. For years, you could find it in bargain bins in record stores across the country. I believe it. It almost all sold poorly, but it did give somebody an idea. George Lucas used this model for Star Wars for merchandising. Oh, yeah. George Lucas used the principles of merchandising from this movie, saw the opportunity, and went for it. And uh, That's where he made all of his money. He was a genius as part of that, of figuring out how to take this and go like, I can license all of this stuff and make way more money than this movie would ever be able to make. (laughs) Well, yeah, and just realizing that it's not just about box office, it's about what you can take home with you. All right, our writing. Mm Mm-hmm. The novels were originally written by Hugh Lofting. Okay. This is his only major work of any note in literature. Mm. But during the release of this film, the family nature of the script got undercut real quickly when everybody learned about just how racist these books are. Mm. I'm not going to go deep into details because it's real bad, but suffice it to say that they very, very much toned down what happens on that sea snail island. Mm. Like, it's real colonialist and racist. Oh, it's in the movies bad enough. It's just so awful. And our screenplay writer, Leslie Bercuse, actually got this job after doing a quick turnaround on the script mm-hmm. and sanitizing all of the issues from the original novels. He wrote that out immediately and turned it around in like a couple of months. Well, that's good. And so the studio went, you got it. You're done. <laughs> Leslie Bercuse wrote the screenplay for this movie Mm -hmm. and was also responsible for the music. Oh, God. Now, Leslie Bercuse also wrote the lyrics to Goldfinger, You Only Live Twice, A Guide for the Married Man, the musical Stop the World I Want to Get Off, three of the songs from Hook, and Jekyll and Hyde the musical. He's got a bunch of other writing credits and music credits, including Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory and a little movie you might be familiar with, 1986's Babes in Toyland. Okay, so I have a lot of opinions. (laughs) Um, First of all, there are some credits on that list that are actually commendable. Oh, yeah. We've talked a lot about how much I love the song You Only Live Twice. Like, that song's great. I don't care. (laughs) I fucking love that song. Oh, God, Babes in Toyland. I'm having flashbacks to how horrible that experience was. Oh, you know what's playing right now. 
they come from? C-I-N-C-I-N-N-A-T-I-Cincinnati The best town in Ohio, USA At first they called it Cincy, but since Cincy is so natty They named it... Oh, God. I know. It's just... The music has really good cores. I will say that. And we know that because the Sam Davis Jr. version of Talk to the Animals is great. It is a great song. It just needs to be played differently. So he is really more of a lyricist and not a composer at all. Yeah, I mean, I'll give him credit. He did the actual composition for Willy Wonka, like co-wrote that. But still, that's really good music. Yeah, I just think like it feels like based on his credits, what he's really good at is lyrics and not composition. Well, who could have been better? How about Alan J. Lerner and Frederick Lowe? That's right, they wanted Lerner and Lowe to repeat the success of My Fair Lady. Of course they did. But Lowe had retired, mm-hmm. and Lerner got fired from the production because he took too long. Yeah, I can see that. Oh my god, what a different movie this would be. It might have might have actually been good. It would have been salvageable. Like, not all the songs would be at least five minutes. They all wouldn't feel such the same. Mm -hmm. I don't think you can necessarily talk about any of the like filming elements, but I sit there and go, you know, they wrote for Rex Harrison and My Fair Lady and those talk songs worked. Well, they also worked with his character and like they wrote songs that were like, oh, I have to deal with this problem and this is how we're going to do that. It's like they thought Doolittle was somehow going to be Henry Higgins and it was like, That's not the same character. No, it's not. Like, Like, yes, he is wacky and a little mm tongue-in-cheek, and that's fine. But you should have written songs that were wacky and tongue-in-cheek. And then make him actually likable. And also, hire somebody else. Oh, oh man. (laughs) I know, right? All right. Our director was Richard Fleischer. Mm -hmm. Before this, he did lots of documentary shorts, then 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, The Vikings, Compulsion, and Fantastic Voyage. Okay. After this, The Boston Strangler, Tora Tora Tora, See No Evil, Soylent Green, 1980s remake of The Jazz Singer, Conan the Destroyer, and Red Sonia. Okay. So based on his credits, I can understand why they they got him for this film. An action guy. Yeah, like an action guy who's going to know like, okay, we're going to have to deal with this stuff here and like i get that makes sense to me but like the musical sequences should have had like fantastic elements to them and none of them do no there's nothing happening oh my god literally nothing there's that one scene where matthew's singing about falling in love Mm -hmm. and all he does is literally walk backwards through a village jump on a boat and then float across and jump on something else yeah, it, it, there's nothing like he should have. He could have been walking through the town and been doing all kinds of things, but they had him do nothing. So, like, this guy understands action, but not musical action. Cause, like, you've got to do more than someone just sitting. Like, that, that is one of the hard things with a musical is the song where somebody is just sitting there, like, singing their feelings when they're not like big explosive feelings. But you've got to do something. And so that song is both the wrong tone and the direction is bad. Well, and who could have been better? John Huston 
Vincent Minnelli, and William Wyler. Fuck. Like, so everybody. They chose not to do Vincent Minnelli because they thought it would be too old school. He would have eaten that up. Oh my god. Like, what did he do with Mimi and St. Louis? He's killed that. It makes me think that what really happened was they went to all those people. They said, fuck no, I'm not doing something that giant. And they managed to convince this guy to do it. Or it was more like, I'm not doing something that hasn't been tested. I'm not doing a musical that nobody has seen or heard or knows anything about. It's too big of a risk because I don't, like, you're basically telling somebody, whatever we film, we have to commit to. And one of the great things about theater is you have a workshop period. And if something doesn't work, you get rid of it. And you can't do that as easily with a film. And it's just like, no, no, I no one, no, it makes total sense why no one's like, fuck this thing. Mm-hmm. Fleischer dedicated an entire chapter of his autobiography to how horrible the experience of making this film was. Only one chapter? Well, I mean, he's got more stories to tell. Fair, but this is a whole book of, like, my life was ruined Oh, by Rex Harrison. Well, this set was a nightmare. Yeah? A fawn ate a quart of paint during a scene break. Oh, no. And had to have her stomach pumped. Gub Gub the pig had to be replaced several times since piglets grow so quickly. Okay, that just makes sense. Squirrels ate through many pieces of important scenery and it required thousands of dollars in repairs. Like, what? Hmm. Oh, it keeps going. The sets in California had to be built slanted to drain the animal waste and laborers were on the ready with brooms to sweep it away. Well, that makes, like, I, like that doesn't surprise me. This is working with animals 101. It's true. There's poop everywhere. The furniture had to be washed and hosed down daily, and duplicates had to be made of literally everything, just in case an animal broke it. Or ate it. <laughs> and the sets consistently stank of waste and ammonia from the cleaning. Of course they did. Birds escaped from being tethered and were caught in the netting on the ceiling of the sound stages. Rex Harrison had to be sprayed down repeatedly for flies while he was filming in the field of sheep. And they frequently peed on him, which yeah. meant more takes. It's funny. A goat broke loose during one scene and ate the director's script. That's a bad omen. <laughs> That's why this movie sucks. The goat ate it. At that point, end the movie. Well, we're ruined. Ah, uh, we're already too far in. Swarms of insects were common in St. Lucia, and many people got bites that became infected, with several cast members suffering from the flu during production. Oh, fun. The first few weeks while they were filming at Castle Combe were completely rained out when producers ignored weather reports. It's an apocalypse now problem. This caused major health problems for the animals, many of whom were not used to this kind of climate. Duh. And producers remove TV antennas from personal residences without talking to them. Hey. The scene where Doolittle's companions leave on the Great Pink Sea Snail enraged the locals, whose children had just recovered from a food poisoning epidemic of freshwater snails. They pelted the prop snail with stones as it sailed up. Hey. Hey. <laughs> Words can't describe? No. Let's feed one more. Finally... Anchored by the attempts to enlarge a pond near Castlecombe, Rainiff finds, yes, that's right, a second cousin of Rafe, Martha, and Joseph, and an original possible candidate for James Bond, who was an actual member of the armed forces. 
attempted to blow up the dam at Castlecombe using army explosives. Hmm. Okay. As a prank, because he hated what they were doing. These people are so stupid. Wow. And that's not the worst thing about this movie. Oh, oh, oh no. Our cast. Yeah, they're pretty bad. Rex Harrison as Dr. John Doolittle. Ew, I hate him. Before this, he was in The Great Game, School for Scandal, All at Sea, School for Husbands, Major Barbara, Blythe Spirit, Anna and the King of Siam, The Ghost and Mrs. Mir, The Foxes of Harrow, The Reluctant Debutante, Cleopatra, My Fair Lady, and The Agony and the Ecstasy. After this, he was in A Flea in Her Ear, Crossed Swords, and The Fifth Musketeer. The producers thought he was too old for the role, but they were trying to get that My Fair Lady success back. Mm-hmm. Oh, They needed a name. I mean, what do you think? Uh, he's okay. I know Rex Harrison is actually a decent actor. Oh yeah, he he actually is. So this script is giving him nothing. Yes, that's the number one problem. The other problem is you can tell he does not give two shits about anything. Oh that's yeah, he is not committed to anything, and he is boring as fuck. Which sucks because this is a two and a half hour movie. And he's carrying like an hour 45 of it. Yep. Maybe more. Yeah. So not only is he bad, everything they gave him was bad. So it's just like, well, this is what we're watching. It's it's like Walter Matthau in Hello, Dolly, but turned to 11. Like he's just a black hole of energy in this movie. Anything that comes in contact with him just suddenly becomes boring. Mm. Oh, boy. He was so awful on set, he earned his nickname Tyrannosaurus Rex. <laughs> Fleischer said that he felt Harrison was never invested in the movie That's to begin with. Very true. He took a full year to agree to the role. So, like, he didn't want to do it in the first place. They sent gave him a lot of money. Well, we'll get there in a minute. Oh, God. But he took points, didn't he? No. In fact, this film was such a bomb, it effectively ended his film career. He kind of deserved. He turned back to the stage after this. Yeah, well. He never did movies really again. His younger cast members were so hateful to him for his abuse, they relentlessly attacked his ego on set. You know what? You're going to be a dick. You deserve to be treated like crap. During a beach scene, he deliberately ruined the shot that he was not involved in by sailing his yacht into the scene and refusing to move it. But (laughs) why? Oh, and it gets worse because Rex Harrison was apparently racist and xenophobic as fuck. Well, that sounds right. Anthony Newley stated that Harrison made numerous anti-Semitic comments to him. Newley was Jewish. And because he was jealous, he demanded Newley's role be reduced, even disrupting scenes that Newley was in. Ew. Jeffrey Holder, who plays William Shakespeare the 10th, said he also received a good amount of racism from Harrison's entourage. Oh, joy. (laughs) Joy. Well. Wowzers. Fuck off, Rex Harrison. You can die in a fire. Yeah. Who could have been better? Anyone. Harrison tried to back out from the production when Lerner left, so they hired Christopher Plummer. Oh, yeah, Christopher Plummer. Yeah, because, you know, Sound of Music. But also Plummer would have been great. Okay, here's the thing about Plummer. If he didn't like what you were making him do, he would just sit there and be a smug asshole, which would have been okay for Doolittle. But Harrison got coaxed back into the project. 
And Plummer got paid his full $300,000 salary to sit out the film. Yep, because he already if he already signed his contract, they have to pay him. If they're like, oh, well, we want to go another way now. Nah, you already hired me. You want to get rid of me, you got to pay me. That's really how that works. Peter O'Toole expressed interest at one point. Okay. I don't think O'Toole was like the greatest singer. No. But you could have stuck with the same Rex Harrison idea. Yeah. And had him talk sing, and it would have worked fine. Uh, that could have been okay. And O'Toole was a great actor. Yes. Also considered Alec Guinness, Peter Sellers, who, yes, we are aware of how awful Peter Sellers is. But would have been great. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. Because the script's so bad, I don't know that Sellers would have been able to, like, fix this. Because I think he would have had a lot of fun with the animals. But there's not a lot of animals in this film. Oh, I beg to differ. Jack Lemmon. Oh, God. I love you, Jack Lemmon. Glad you didn't do this movie. Dodge that bullet. Just, no. Because he, too, would have had fun with the animals. It's true. I, I'm i just going to think about the apartment now. Thank you. <laughs> so they had plenty of people who would have been great. Yeah, they had some great options. Christopher Plummer would have been perfect. I would have enjoyed seeing Plummer do something like this. He would have turned on the charm. He would have been sarcastic when he needed to be. But then he also would have been loving and attentive to the animals. And you would have gotten that tension. Like, there's a part of me that watches, especially the second half of this movie, Mm -hmm. as wild as it is, you go, there's a good movie in here somewhere. Yeah, it's mostly that the beginning takes so damn long. And it's like, no, the journey is what's interesting. And him, like, actually, him actively trying to talk to animals and learning their languages which I didn't realize that that was a part of this film because I'm mostly used to the Eddie Murphy version. Yeah. Which is fucking great. Which, you know, like there's problems with that film too. But I liked seeing him learn about talking with animals. Like the whole thing is that, oh, it's not that you just can, you have to learn their actual language. So that's funny. Like I like when he has the fish and the in the tank and then he just dumps them out it's very it's cute and silly and they could have done that a lot and it would have been great if you just made that first sequence of it like 30 minutes where we went back and we understood how he got into this and how he started learning about how to talk to the animals Mm -hmm. that would be fine yeah everything else is just but it takes an hour takes an hour for us to even get to a semblance of that. Yeah. And then we only get to be on the boat with them for like 10 minutes. Like, and that's the best part of the movie. Yeah, it really is. It's the most entertaining part. Oh my God. Two hours of setup for 30 minutes of like an okay movie. Yeah. Ooh. Ooh, it's it so hurts. bad. It hurts. All right. Playing Emma Fairfax is Samantha Egger. Before this, she was on Rob Roy for television. The Collector, and Walk Don't Run. After this, The Molly Maguires, A Name for Evil, The 7% Solution, The Brood, Curtains, 1996's The Phantom, The Voice of Hera in Disney's Hercules, and The Astronaut's Wife. Hmm. She's fine. She's trying. I mean, her role sucks. Yeah. She's written horribly. Oh my god. I mean, she's basically a servant. Like, they just don't know what to do with her. No. And, like, she could have been funny, and then it's like, she's in love with the side dude, but then, no, I'm in love with John, and it's just like, whatever. What? That was the most fucking confusing thing to me ever. None of it made any sense. I was like, what? She's suddenly in love with Doolittle? 
When did that happen? Yeah, none of there's. It's so bad. Oh, it's like it's like an anti Bechdel test for her. Kinda, yeah. Oh, she sucks. Was that really her fault? Who could have been better? Rex Harrison suggested his friend Maggie Smith. Hell yeah, Maggie Smith all day in every role ever. And also considered were Julie Andrews, Barbara Streisand, and Haley Mills. Ooh, Haley Mills. Yeah, something about like. Julie was already well known enough. She was mm-hmm. going to do Thoroughly Modern Millie. Yeah. And it was like, we already know her as a grown up. Mm-hmm. And this is more of a kid, not like a kid, kid. I don't know. Just like a younger woman. A younger person. Mm-hmm. Barbara would have been Barbara and amazing. Yeah. But you know. Maggie Smith. Maggie Smith all day. Yeah. Next, we have Anthony Newley as Matthew Mugg. Mm hmm. He was Bercuse's co-writer for the music for Willy Wonka and Stop the World I Want to Get Off. Okay. Before this, he acted in 1944's Henry IV. He was the artful dodger in David Lean's Oliver Twist in 1948. Mm, Okay. In a bunch of random movies. Like, nothing you would know. After this, he did 1968's Sweet November. Can I I had to do this because the title's too good. Can Hieronymus Merkin ever forget Mercy Humpa and find true happiness? Those aren't words. No. And the Garbage Pail Kids movie. Oh, okay. (laughs) I've never actually seen that, but I know about it. So, more of a musical guy. Okay. Well, you should have one. Yeah. I mean, I don't think he's bad. The Irish jokes are a little like, really? We're going to keep doing this the entire time? Yep. Mm -hmm. And his accent's not good. Nope. Like, just let him be cockney British guy. Yeah, that'd be fine. No one would care. But I don't hate him in the role. He's serviceable. He's doing everything he can with the bad script. He's trying not to make it crap, Mm -hmm. and it's not his fault that it is. Who could have been better? Danny Kaye and Bing Crosby. Ooh, Danny Kaye, not Bing Crosby. No, Bing was way too old for this at that Mm -hmm. point. Danny Kaye could have convincingly played a slightly younger person standing next to Doolittle. Yeah. Even in 1967. Next up, Richard Attenborough as Albert Blossom. The highlight of the fucking movie for me. Okay, when I saw him, I thought it was Frank Morgan. And then I looked it up and I was like, Frank Morgan died like 10 years before this film was made. (laughs) Uh, Frank Morgan's the wizard in Wizard of Us. That's why I was like, what's going on? I, I couldn't tell it was him until like five minutes in. And I was like, that's Richard Attenborough. He was so young. Oh, holy shit. No. He acts his ass off. He's hilarious. Could He's ha- so good. Why couldn't he have been the sidekick? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Why couldn't he have been fucking Doolittle? Doolittle. He could have pulled that off great. Yeah. Before this, he was in Glory at Sea, 1958's Dunkirk, The Great Escape, Seance on a Wet Afternoon, great little indie British movie. The Flight of the Phoenix and the Sand Pebbles. After this, The Magic Christian, Loot, A Bridge Too Far, Jurassic Park. 1994's Miracle on 34th Street, E equals MC squared. 1996's Hamlet, Elizabeth, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, and of course, Planet Earth and his environmental activism. I love him as the narrator on Planet Earth. Yeah, I know. Oh, I need to rewatch those. Also, a lot of those later movies, he directed as well. Oh, interesting. Not Jurassic Park, obviously, but a lot of his late work, he was also writing and directing a bunch of that stuff, too. So, Also, father-in-law to Jane Seymour. He was a last-minute replacement for this role. Okay. Peter Bull, 
who plays General Bellows in the film, who we'll get to next, was recast after concerns over his problem drinking. Hmm. They also considered Hugh Griffith, who was also denied because he had a major drinking problem. Okay. So somehow, Richard Attenborough was able to be sober enough for the producers to say, cool, we can get you to do this scene. Hmm. And he nails it. He's, he's hilarious. God bless him. He's just ridiculous and entertaining, and I love him. Moving on to Arpons. Mm-hmm. Peter Bull, playing General Bellows, you would remember him. He was Ambassador Alexei in Dr. Strangelove. Okay. Looking at his face, you, you kind of get it pretty quick, and I just wait for a German accent to come out of him every time. Yeah, I wouldn't have known the character name, but I recognize the face. Yep. We have Muriel Landers as Mrs. Blossom. She was in Pillow Talk and the Disorderly Orderly. <laughs> William Dix as Tommy Stubbins, our little kid, mm-hmm. being a little kid. Jeffrey Holder as William Shakespeare Tenth. We've talked about him before. He is a legendary dancer, performer, and actor, and played Baron Sumedi in Live and Let Die. Oh, okay. We have some who could have been betters for this, though. Okay. Sidney Poitier and Sammy Davis Jr. Mm. Now, in the original script for the film, they were using the original character from the books, Bumpo. I'm not going to get into how awful Bumpo's storyline is. You can look that up yourself. But that was when they approached Poitier. Poitier's line which I think is very gentle while also being very shady, is, I'm an actor, not an entertainer. Yep. He turned down the role. Of course he did. Good move. Davis Jr. was kind of all in for it. Mm -hmm. Which, like, his persona would have worked for this movie. His personality would have massaged what was uncomfortable about the character. Yeah. It does not excuse it, but he would have made it more palatable. He just, he would have done a really good job in the role. But apparently, Rex Harrison refused to work with him, probably because he could sing better than Rex Harrison. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Didn't matter, Davis got the last laugh by having a massive hit with Harrison's song. Hells yeah, he did. We also have Portia Nelson as Sarah Doolittle, Sister Bertha in The Sound of Music, Hmm. and Norma Varden as Lady Featherington. She was in so many different things, but she was Frau Schmidt. We also have Judy the Chimpanzee as Chi-Chi. Okay. She appeared in so many television shows. Like, so many. Gilligan's Island, Mr. Ed, The Munsters, Flipper. You name it in the 60s, she was probably on it. Okay. She was also Cousin Bessie in the Beverly Hillbilly. Oh, that's funny. Gub-Gub the Pig. Gub-Gub. Polynesia the Parrot. Mm -hmm. Rufus the Dog. And Sophie the Seal. And as the actual voice of Polynesia, we have Ginny Tyler. She did lots of voice work, most known for Davy and Goliath, the Lambs and Mary Poppins. Oh. And Daisy on the Flintstone. Okay. All right. Trivia. Okay. The song The Reluctant Vegetarian was probably the hardest scene to film. The cast had hours of rehearsal to prep and film the scene because the animals had to sit still for so long in that song. Mm. The first take was actually going real great. Like they had it all prepped. And then Harrison stopped singing. Fleischer went, why? And Harrison said, I heard you say cut. And then they started arguing until they heard cut. It was Polynesia, the parrot, who had been yelling cut while he was singing. Oh, that's awesome. Rex's quote, and this is the one good quote I'll give him. That's the first time I've ever been directed by a parrot. But she may be right. I probably can do it better. Mm. 
that's like the best attitude to have about a crappy situation. Uh-huh. But you're part of the crappy situation. So oh, he was the biggest part of the crappy situation. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. The scene in the duck pond wasn't supposed to be difficult. But then the ducks started sinking during the scene. <laughs> that was because at that time of year, they lost their water repellent feathers and couldn't swim. Holy fuck, they didn't pay any attention to, like, animal shit? No. This is well before animal welfare laws. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously. One scene required a squirrel to sit still next to Polynesia long enough for Doolittle to sing to it. After tying the squirrel's paws to a perch, a producer found a vet to sedate the squirrel. They used a fountain pen full of gin to get it drunk, and the squirrel passed out cold. Yeah, the upkeep for the animals averaged about $750 a week. That's nearly $6,000 in today's money. Okay. There were 1,200 live animals used in this film. Yeah, that sounds good. And one giraffe died before insurance took effect. What? Yeah. The, the film killed a giraffe? Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. This this movie's terrible. It's It's a crime that this movie was made. The Great Pink Sea Snail was an eight-ton machine that cost more than $65,000. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And it's actually pretty cool, like, except the face. All of the California-trained animals could not be used at Castle Combe because the UK had animal quarantine laws. They didn't plan for this. Mm. So they had to spend a shit ton of money to train new animals in the UK. Uh-huh. They are so dumb. What a fucking disaster. They are so dumb. Somehow, somehow, producer Arthur Jacobs would convince Fox to give him $5 million to make another movie. That movie was Planet of the Apes. Mm-hmm. All right. I mean, you win some, you lose some. Go big or go home, I guess. <laughs> Apparently, Jacobs also suffered a heart attack during production, which, I mean, based on how bad this went, I can see why. And... Arthur Jacobs wanted the Sherman brothers to write the music for this movie, but Walt Disney had them under contract, and they refused to walk away. <laughs> they tried. <laughs> the nominations for this film uh, are rigged and inappropriate. <laughs> this film was nominated for Best Sound, Best Scoring of Music, Adaptation of Treatment, Best Original Music Score, Best Song, Best Special Effects, Best Cinematography, Best Art Direction, and Best Picture. This is the only Best Picture nominee from this year that was not nominated in any writing category. Yeah. You will notice this with the other movies we're covering. Writing was such a key factor in this year's movies. True. You had authors who were daring to tackle really deep subjects. Mm -hmm. Maybe not perfectly. We talked about Bonnie and Clyde being a hodgepodge and a mess, but they were going after it. Yeah. This movie's doing nothing. Mm. And yet, they still got in that top tier award nomination. The only one that makes sense to me is the special effects. That's the only one where I'm like, I'll let you have that one. Well, and- I'll let you have the nomination. The best song was Talk to the Animals, which because of how popular it got, I totally understand why they got nominated. Yeah, but- Their version sucks. It does, but that's not the version that got nominated. Okay, well, I'll give him that. Or performed, for that matter. Yeah. Did Sammy Davis perform it? He does, and we'll get to watch that when we get to our Oscar, our 68 Oscars coverage later. I'm actually really excited about watching that. I know. Despite 
this movie. Ugh. Ratings? Ugh. How many snail mobiles? How many great pink sea snails? That's the only one you can do. Ugh. I want to give it nothing. I really do. You want to give it no pink sea snails? Uh, this would be the first film that I've ever given no stars. There's mm-hmm. nothing redeemable about it or interesting. I have to go... I'm going to go a one. I know that seems very generous, but here's my logic. The special effects and the technical aspects of this movie are pretty good. Like we talked about watching the parrot talk Mm -hmm. and they don't do that obnoxious animatronic thing. Uh They just have the parrot squawk and layer the voiceover really well. They use the animals well in most of the sequences and the way they set up the shots, it worked. That plus the fact that, you know, there are certain scenes that I was like, this is pretty great. Like the last 20 minutes of the movie and Attenborough circus scene, some of that stuff was really good. And because there were those little moments and this feeling like there is something to this movie, I can't just knock it complete. I'm going to go one pink sea snail for this. You know, they killed a giraffe. Zero. Wow. You heard it here first. Zero. Zero anything. It's worse than Slapshot. I would rather watch Slapshot again. Wow. I mean, fair. Because at least Slapshot's only an hour and a half. And I would rather watch RoboCop. I would watch both those movies before I watch this crap again. Well, I would definitely watch RoboCop. RoboCop's actually a good movie. That was the film that had my lowest rating. I think they're both rated at half a star. They killed a giraffe. No, (laughs) You get nothing. That's that's a line for me. (sighs) I promise you, there are no other movies, except maybe Camelot, that are this bad. If you're wrong, you're going to pay dearly. (laughs) Well, our next movie is one that got nominated in all the super substantial categories. Okay, and which film is that? We're going to be doing In the Heat of the Night. Oh, yes. We've got Sidney Poitier Mm -hmm. and Rod Steiger doing a movie about Southern racism and murder. Oh, so about Texas. Cool. Eh, more like Mississippi. Potato, potato. We're going deep south. Fun. Yeah, that, I have always wanted to see this movie. Yeah. Like, really, I know it's been on everybody's list. It's just like, you have to watch this. You have to watch this. And, like, from what I hear, as much as we really enjoyed the back and forth and the sort of nuanced tension of Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, mm-hmm. this movie's explosive. Well, that's good. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. So, <sighs> until next time. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.